Welcome to the 7 and 7 show where your host, Zach Ellison, extracts valuable insights from top investment experts. Seven key questions in just seven minutes. Stay on top of market trends, expand your investment knowledge, and get tips from the best in the business. Brought to you by Applied Real Intelligence, ARI, the leader in venture debt financing. www.arivc.com. Let's grow! things that I say on probably every podcast is that founders should be thinking a lot about their liquidity. Almost as much as they're thinking about their product at this stage, because folks that have ample liquidity and the ability to withstand this downturn that could last for years, like you just said, those folks are going to wind up being at the top of the heap because their other competitors are going to wind up running out of juice and they're just going to fall off. And the analogy that I, that I've used many times is, if you're in if you're in the woods with your friend and you see a bear, you don't have to outrun the bear. You just you have, have to outrun, to outrun your friend. Yeah. Right. And and it's it's I say it every time because it, it it's so true. You don't have to have the best product right now. You could be number four or five in your category, but if you go out and strengthen your balance sheet and make sure that you have that ample liquidity, right? your competitors that are above you right now, in some cases, are going to run out of runway. They're simply going to run out of cash. And that's the number one reason companies, startups go out of business. They run out of cash or they they lack funding options. And so if you can negate that risk, you're going you're gonna to probably wind up better than almost anybody else in your space in the next three to five years, just because you have more money, yeah. not because you're necessarily the best product. So I, I keep harping on that and people that listen to the show consistently probably are like, Zach, you're like a broken record. But I'm like, I am because that's the message, but that message needs to get out there because people are going to come back in three or four years and you're going to say, I wish I would have listened to you and raised capital when I had the ability to, because if you think you're going to raise when you need it, I think you're dead wrong because when you need it, it's not there because I mean, you, you can speak from the equity perspective. I mean, how many months of runway are people typically going to be looking for in series A and B and C at this point? It's not 12 months. It's usually at this point, you know, three years of runway. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's like it's like trying to assemble a plane while you're trying to take off. It doesn't work. You, you should have the plane ready long before you want to take off. So if exactly. they don't have their, you know, if they don't have the connections done, they don't, they're not already having conversations. They don't have term sheets be ready to be in it for another six to 12 months before you get any money in the bank. So have you seen a shift in how founders are approaching funding options in terms of their own ego in the sense that I I noticed that this is starting to change finally where folks realize like, Hey, I'm no longer able to fund at any price whenever I want. I need to basically take the options that are given to me. What have you seen in terms of the mentality shift? Well, they've, Founders have become a lot more coachable, you know, um, when it comes to discussion. I remember there were cases in 2021, actually, that was the worst year, honestly, for for investors, because everyone thought they're just hot shots. You know, everything was overpriced. Um, we had a term sheet negotiation where we weren't even asking for anything ridiculous. Uh, all we were asking for were information rights. Like we, we said, look, we'll, we'll put the money in. All we want is a quarterly report on how the company is doing. And can you believe that the founder said no and went to, and raised from someone else who didn't even want information on the company? And I bet they're not doing so well now. Yeah, I, I, I believe so. But, but it is ridiculous because 
a quarterly report isn't a big deal if you're actually monitoring your company and growing it the way you should. All you do is just take some of those metrics and send it over to us, right? Um, can you believe that? That's what we lost the deal on. And so that that was definitely an ego thing because I don't think practically it made any sense that we asked them for information rights and they said no. Um, but, but that's going away and it's pretty ridiculous. It's one of the most ridiculous things I've seen in, in all the investing I've done. So. Would you say that folks are more um, more realistic now and, and have more humility? I believe so. I, I think a lot of people are back down to earth. Um, and that includes investors too, who've made these ridiculous bets in 2021 and suddenly feel like, oh, I should have done, you know, I should have been more thorough with what I invest in. And so it's 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 on both sides. I think people are back down to earth a little bit. I've, I've got a good story from uh, the investor side. I was at a conference in, um, I think it was, I can't remember where it was. It was probably in, in Miami. It could have been somewhere else though. And it was, I think this was like late 2021. And I ran into a guy from a family office that I know, and we were talking about investment opportunities. And, you know, he was looking at venture debt and he said, you know, I, I really like it, but we're looking for a 10 X return on any investment we make. And I said, wow, you must have a really long time horizon. He said, no, we have a one year horizon. And oh, I, really? I almost like spit up my drink, right? Because I'm thinking to myself, nobody's that good where they they're going to get a 10x return in a year and they think they can do it consistently but he was dead serious like he thought that they could do that and you know now he's nowhere to be found i don't think but um but that's, yeah, what, that's the type of what, ego that people had in 2021 they thought because you know because they could invest in crypto and it went from you know a dollar to thousands of dollars that that was like a reasonable rate of return that they could expect the, in perpetuity the, oldest adage in statistics right don't use the exception to prove the rule that's what they all keep doing it's ridiculous sometimes but the human mind is weird we just keep coming back oh crypto went from oh whatever six thousand to sixty thousand bitcoins up 10x in a year so that means everything else will be 10x that's not how it works yeah people take the past and they extrapolate into the future yeah without thinking about the mechanisms that will and an economy that can consistently produce 10x um, year after year means that our GDP has to be 10x in year after year, which I don't think is really happening, is it? So where is all this produce or value coming from, right? Like on a macroeconomic scale, it just doesn't make any sense. Maybe in a small little microcosm, you could have exceptions where you see those and then you start extrapolating to everything else. But that is insane. This was a family office, you said? Yeah, I would yeah. expect a family office to have a professional manager, but who knows? Yeah, I mean, look, in 2021, people are just off. You know, they're off the rails. I don't think they had they were tied to reality at all, and and I still think a lot of people are not fully connected with reality. Yeah, like, I haven't seen a, a real bear market in almost 15 years now. That is true. That is true. This has been the longest bull market in a in in a while. Um, really, it's, it's 15. Been, yeah. 15 yeah. years is a lot. Yeah, that's Long true. Years. A lot of people that started in that period have never really seen a bear market. Yeah. They think you just, whatever you throw money into, it just goes up and you don't even need to do any work on it. And yeah. voila, you're just going to, you know, sit there and order, order Amazon and watch Netflix while your, while your investment portfolio doubles every year. A true, a true money tree, right? Yeah. Planet, <laughs> planet and it grows. And there, the leaves are just dollar bills. So you've been very successful investing in, in a lot of different types of companies. What are the investment principles that you live by? 
Uh, two major things that I always look at, um, and, and you know, angels in general, any smart angel will due diligence four major items that I'll talk about. But the two biggest things I look at is I really take the time to understand the team. For me, if the team rubs me the wrong way and I feel like um, I don't think that this is the team to execute, then it doesn't matter if they have the greatest product in the world. It doesn't matter. So the team is very important to me. And then the second thing is the market is very important. So the team and the size of the market, those are the two big things I'll look at. I'm not so interested in what product they're creating, you know, because products change so rap, uh, you know, drastically over the life cycle of a company. The product's not a constant, but I'm hoping the team's a constant and the market typically is a constant. So those two things are the most important to me after product and market, I'll look at traction. That would be the third variable. Product doesn't show up until the fourth step, you know? So team, uh, market, product, uh, traction, and then product. Those are the four things I'll look at. And, and when I, and let me put some numbers to it. For team, I'm looking at three major things. What's the background of the founders? Have they done something like this before? Do they understand what they're doing? Do they have the ability to execute? Are they coachable? Right. For market, I'm typically looking at the size and I'm looking at real market size. There are tons of these like, you know, like off Google analyses that you can get where it's like, this is my total addressable market. And I don't care about your total addressable market. How much of that market can you actually reach? Right. Like if you if you had a go to market strategy in your head, I'm going to go to this, this, this and this store or this, this and this retailer. And I'll be on the shelves of this, this and this retailer. And this is the volume that they're able to sell for this particular category. And if I was to dominate all that volume, that would be my market size, right? Um, not like, oh, th this is the value of all you know goods and services in that industry of, around the world, and that's my market size. This is a ridiculous overestimation, right? They're never going to have that. So, so we typically look at that as the potential market size. And if that's over a certain value, typically we would say, um, a few billion dollars. And the reason I say a few billion dollars is because of the way the economics and the of angel investing works. We get like one home run in every like 30 to 50 investments we make. So by one home run, I mean like $1 billion exit in every 30 to 50 decent investments we make. And then if you look at most of the others going to zero, you realize that the market size for each company has to be at least a few billion dollars for them to get anywhere near a billion dollar exit, right? So if if they were at like, say, 100 million in revenue or 200 million in revenue, there's a potential they'll exit at a hundred billion, uh, at a billion dollars, right? Like 10x, 5x, 5 to 10x. And for them to capture a hundred million dollars of a $10 billion market, is very, it's in the realm of reality. For them to capture $100 million of a $100 million market is like, good luck with that, right? So so the market size is very important because the exit value is very much based on how big the company gets. And that decides the economics and return for the portfolio of an angel investor. The market size is important. Then after that, I'll look at traction. Traction is just as an indication as to, okay, you got a great market size, you've got a great team, but what you're building, does anyone even want what you're building, right? I mean, you might think that you're disrupting the market, but others might have a different opinion. 
And so do you have any early indicators of traction? Is this thing even going to take off the ground? You know, are you just still stuck on the runway or is, is the plane taking off? I don't know how high you're going to make it, but you should at least be able to take off the landing pad or you're just stuck there. Um, and so, and then finally I'll look at the product because if you've got some traction and the market's big, you got a great team, the product really doesn't matter because I think the product's good enough. You wouldn't have traction otherwise. So. And to your point that you made earlier that I think is spot on, but overlooked, there's going to be multiple pivots and shifts in, in any product from angel yeah. stage to, totally. to exit. And there's going to be many, many uh, unequivocally. There's, I don't think there's ever been a company in history that, that the day one angel stage product was what they eventually ended up with. Yeah. Unless they're like mining gold or something. I, I get that, but yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So, okay, so team, market, traction, and then product, less important at that stage, but just, but making sure that, um, but they've got the the big three in place. Yeah, yeah. And, and that'll be what I would look at. I, it sounds like a very basic answer, but you know, when, you, when you're a beginner, the stuff you start with is what you end up with when you're very advanced too. It's really weird, like in this investing industry, the basics are what, you know, just make good investors. Well, I agree with that. I mean, I when I worked on um, Wall Street, I, I worked for you know Deutsche Bank when we were number one in the world, biggest bank in the world, number one in fixed income trading. And I worked with literally the top traders and, and salespeople in the world um, at 60 Wall Street. And I would one of the things I did everywhere I worked is I went and, and built relationships with the top producers and got to know what made them successful. And basically the, the takeaway, as simple as it was, is that it's, it's it really all boils down to execution. So I would go to producers that were making 10, 15 million bucks a year, say, well, how are you so good? Like what, it, what has made you, you know, such a great producer for so many years? And almost across the board in slightly different language, but the theme was always the exact same. It's all about blocking and tackling. The number of times I've heard that term verbatim, it's in the dozens, right? Coming from producers making eight figures annually, right? blocking and tackling and outworking people. Like the top people at Deutsche Bank were there the latest every night. Yeah. The only people that were there eight at night and five in the morning were me and you know the guys that were making eight figures. Yeah, yeah. That's, you know, that's how it worked, right? And so I basically modeled my career after those that came before me. And what I learned was it's actually not as complicated as one might think. It really is about working your ass off executing and figuring out how to be helpful and add value to those around you. If you can add value to the other people on your team and you can add value for customers, you're always going to make money. And it's not, you know, it's not really that complicated. Find a problem that, that nobody else has really solved effectively and then work your ass off to solve it. Right. I mean, it's, it's and, and, you know, I think people overcomplicate it. And they want yeah. something that's like super fancy and hard to understand. It's like, no, it's not, it's not that hard to understand. Yeah. There's no big secret, honestly. Same with everything with investing too. There's no big secret. I mean, it's all, it's all the basics over and over. Just practice diligently for long periods of time. Exactly. One of the things I want to ask you though, about team, which I think is, is fascinating is how does one quantify to some degree how that team is going to perform over the next you know, 10 or 15 years? Like, how do you think about one's track record or footprint and what signals do you look for that demonstrate that they're going to be successful going forward? 
Yes, yeah, so, so so I would divide that into objective and subjective metrics. Objective being how I feel, which which every investor has their own little flavor to how they feel about particular people, about particular teams, how they're interacting, how they present, et cetera, et cetera. But the objective side would be, and that's something everyone can take away from this, is looking at the backgrounds of the members, right? Do they have similar experiences? Have they done this before? Are they multiple, you know, have they exited before? Have they been through the funding life cycle before? Have they faced challenges in their lives before that they've overcome? Whether it's in business or other areas, those are objectively quantifiable things that you can look at and you should dig into. And and that's what I would say everyone should do. Now there's subjective measures like, you know, how do you feel about the presentation? Can this person really sell you? Can they sell the product? If they can't sell you, can they actually sell any other customer? Those become subjective because different people can perceive things differently. But but I do think determining the ability of a person to execute the grit that they have, the ability to grit, basically ability to overcome um, adverse circumstances, having the ability to execute in a similar scenario previously, um, their cohesion between the team, how they interact with each other um, and their backgrounds. You, you can actually look at all of this uh, with a, and, and comb through it with a very fine to uh, tooth comb and look at it and, and really think about what are these qualities going to do for the business here? You know, that's the idea. Now, some of it is obviously subjective, like I said, but the idea is to take what they've given you and see how applicable it is to the business that they're creating right now. And if there's a close enough fit, then you say, okay, there's a good team, right? And and that calibration will continue as you start looking at tens of startups, hundreds of startups, thousands of startups. You'll start meeting all types of teams and then you'll calibrate your mind on how that's done. Now, if you wanted to do it very scientifically and formally, there are frameworks for evaluating founders out there, which is crazy, but there are actual frameworks out there for how you would evaluate a team. And you can search those. A lot of good startup incubators and accelerators have those frameworks. There are a number of others. They, everyone has their own framework for evaluating founders, but but there are certain scientific frameworks out there. Yeah, there's a couple of groups of founders that I think are are worth investing in um, and overweighting assets to. One is veterans. I think military veterans um, have a lot of those characteristics that that you mentioned, leadership grit, persistence, um, the ability to work in a, in a complex, large organization, but as part of a smaller team, the ability to adapt under pressure, I think yep. is huge. Um, you know, that, that flexibility and, and ability to make tough decisions under, under pressure, I think is, is really valuable. And it's also why I like ex athletes quite a bit and they don't need to yes. be ex pro athletes. Although I think they make great founders too. A couple of my good friends are ex NFL players that have great businesses. And I think a lot of the lessons you learn as an athlete, at, even at the high school or, or college level, are things that make you a better business builder. Uh, like you talked about this idea of coachability uh, earlier. I think coachability is huge, you know, and, and being able to take criticism and take rejection and lose and handle it and come back stronger. Because as a founder, you're really hearing no 99% of the time. I mean, I'm a founder, right? I built ARI from from nothing, just an idea in, in my mind. You're you're a you know, two-time successful founder and now onto your your third endeavor with Alleyway. And the reality is, even when you're successful, you hear no 99% of the time. I mean, 
I, I tell all the folks that are you know looking for capital and, and advice from me, I, I tell them, look, I've been in your shoes and I'm still in them because I have to yeah. go raise, I have to raise a lot more money than you do, actually. You're right, right. <laughs> and I actually probably have tougher, tougher standards because I'm trying to raise money from large institutional investors that have really, really, really rigorous diligence processes and and a lot of machinery that you have to work your way through. And so my thinking is that you know athletes have handled you know adversity in the past and they've they've um, been able to come back stronger typically right and so you can learn a lot from one's um, athletic track record as well as their business track record and then the other group of founders that i really like are underrepresented founders that have overcome you know, other challenges in their life you know i think you know just being a woman for instance in in the startup ecosystem makes it more difficult to raise capital right and yeah. and so you know if you're able to succeed when when there aren't as many folks helping you that to me is a huge signal of future success 100 yeah, percent. if you're from an underrepresented group and you've done this successfully previously the indications that you'll be successful again are a lot stronger i completely agree i think there needs to be more capital that's allocated to veterans and women and minorities, uh, I, that's a big gap in the market. It's a huge you know, inequality right now, but it, it also means there's a huge economic opportunity by mm -hmm. making the, the funding market more efficient. You know, there's gonna be a lot of opportunity there to make money for on, you know, whether you're a founder or whether you're a VC. Or there are also unique money. problems that they bring to the market. So, so they might be underserved in terms of capital, uh, you know, just allocation. But as far as being consumers, women are the major consumers in the household. They're the ones who are buying most of the stuff. And they understand the problems of those consumers a lot better. Same with veterans. They understand the problems that other veterans face a lot better. So they can build innovative solutions and products that no one else can build for that particular segment. And it's a large market segment. So it's not just an inequality and trying to be fair, there's a large market opportunity that we're missing out on by not giving these diverse founders the capital that they should get. Building products for one's community that maybe is, to your point, it's underserved in terms of capital allocation, but there's yes. huge groups of, of people out there that want these products well, yeah. and their needs aren't being met until the founder yeah. comes along and, and builds that company. I mean, think about, you've got, You've got women that are you know, half the population, you've got a huge you know, segment of the population that's black, Hispanic. You've got you know, massive you know, segments of the population that aren't that historically have not been you know, served that efficiently by the venture ecosystem. And there's a lot of money there and there's a lot of consumers and there's a lot of yeah. demand for products. And those products aren't being delivered as efficiently as they could be because the allocation of capital isn't there. So and like and there have been some good exits in this space where, you know, there've been women founded companies that are serving women's needs. Femtech is, that's why there's a new category called Femtech, which is just female technology. And it's because there's so much innovation needed in these areas. And these founders haven't been given the capital that now there's a complete industry around that. There's a lot of market opportunity. And only these particular founders understand the problems well enough to come up with good solutions. Someone has to tell me solve a femtech problem. How am I going to understand that? I can try to read about it, but 
an inherent deep understanding of the problem and the types of features and products that are, need to be built, the type of team that needs to be put together for something like this, I wouldn't be able to comprehend it. Well, we, we're almost out of time, but I have a couple more key questions that I really wanted to get your insights on. And one is, what mistakes do you see investors making in terms of LPs that are investing potentially into VC funds, but also the VCs themselves? Like, Where do you see mistakes and what have you learned from those mistakes? One of the big mistakes with LPs I'm seeing is that they're not diversifying enough when they invest in venture. They think venture is one big silo, right? Just put your money in venture. There are many categories under venture, right? There are many categories under venture. There's early stage, there's late stage, there's venture debt. There's a bunch of things. There's secondaries. Um, there's so much. And, and by secondary, that's a whole different whole different area, not going to get too much into it, but just remember that there's a secondary market that exists in venture capital, uh, just like in uh, you know public equity. So, so the interesting part is that venture by itself is not a silo. It has multiple classes in it, just like you diversify between different asset classes. If you're a family office or an LP, try to diversify between the different subcategories of venture. That's a big mistake. That if you don't do that, you'll never learn what works for you. You'll never learn what jives with your investment thesis. And then, you know, just, just going to waste your money. You nailed it. I, I think about investing as, well, investing in innovation as the asset class. Yeah. So when people talk about you know, VC, to your point, that's a huge category. What they're really saying, even though they don't realize it, is they want to invest in innovation yeah. because innovation creates value, which makes them money. Right. But to your point, innovation is so broad. I mean, you could be investing in you know, Apple or Microsoft, and those are innovative companies, but those are large you know, mega cap companies. And then you've got stuff on the you know, other side of the spectrum, which is where you specialize, you know, angel stage. And then yeah. you've got everything in between. And then you've got all types of flavors. You've got equity, you've got you know, venture debt, but then you've got different stages of equity, different stages yeah. of debt. And then you've got hybrid products like you know, convertible notes, for instance, and all different yeah. types of, of hybrids. So to your point, and I've talked about this in the past with, with other investors on the podcast, you need to diversify across multiple levels. So we always say you know, diversification within diversification within diversification. So you think, okay, first I want to move into alternative investments. Then within alternatives, I need to diversify within that. So I want some real estate. I want some private credit. I want some, some venture capital. You know, I want some commodities, et cetera. And then with each of those categories, you got to like, diversify, yeah. you know, and so I, th I think that's great advice to give to people. You, you don't have to pick the one winner, right? I mean, that's the other thing I, I say to people when they say, well, why should I invest in, in just your fund? Like, well, you shouldn't, right? Like yeah, what you should do is if you like venture debt, which you should because it's a great product right now and probably will be for the next decade, you should go diversify within venture debt. You should yeah, have... Yeah because there's different types of companies. There's public companies that are doing you know, $200 million venture debt loans. And there's companies doing loans as small as a couple hundred thousand. And, and there's, you know, everybody in between. And so you should find, you know, three to five managers that you like that have complementary non-competing strategies. And then you've got that segment covered. And I think that's where a lot of folks go wrong. So I, I'm echoing what you just said. I, yeah, I exactly. I, I agree. Diversification in the venture silo is important rather than just taking it as one big thing. And, um, there, um, I want to ask you too, if on the founder side, if 
if you were to give advice to a founder, um, and it could be angel stage or it could be later, what do they need to do to maximize their chances of raising capital in the right size and the right price? Um, in this environment, I would say go in with, um, you know, go in with expectations that are in line with the market. Like you, you shouldn't go in with a valuation that's ridiculously high because then you're never going to make it to the point where you actually end up pitching the investors and that kind of kills them. but don't go in with a valuation that's so low that you have no way out right so you've got to find that sweet spot where you're at a valuation where it's a little uncomfortable for the investor but you can kind of negotiate to a point where it's fair to vote right so you come in a little higher than what you think is fair and then you go from there that if i was the founder that's what i would be doing but I wouldn't be so high that, you know, that I never really, they think, oh, this guy's crazy and I don't even want to deal with him. You don't want to get to that point. You don't want to go in so low and so timid that you absolutely get rolled over, right? Um, that's, you, you, you don't want that either. You, you don't want the investors to absolutely just wreck your company by taking all of it. So, so there's a sweet spot there. That's one piece of advice, how you value your company and the kind of terms you set should be should be at a point where there's some level of negotiation that's needed, right? If there's no negotiation going on and the investor's like, oh yeah, this makes sense. Oh, this is great, blah, blah. Your valuation is perfect. And, and then you're like, okay, I'm, I'm leaving money on the table here. There should be a little bit of negotiation there, okay? So go in with some flexibility and the ability to negotiate both terms and valuation. And then the second thing you should be doing is you should hammer your metrics and your pr productivity to the max, right? Like have everything crystal clear, have your growth numbers in place, know everything inside out. Um, when people ask you questions, you should come across as a confident founder who understands the market and the business. There should be, whether you're the CTO or the CFO, the CFO should know all the product stuff. The CTO should know all the financial stuff. Okay, you should know everything. In a small company, everyone should know everything. And so when you're asked a question that comes out of left field, you have an answer and it should be a genuine answer, right? Not a made up salesperson type answer. So um, that's important. That's the other thing in this market, um, being confident about what you're doing is important because many people are hesitating, right? So if, you're, if you have flexibility in your terms and valuation, a good negotiator, being a good negotiator, and knowing exactly what you're doing in your company, understanding it inside out, those two things will help you with investors a lot in this type of a market. I'm always amazed at how many investors, or excuse me, how many founders don't actually know all the details of their company. And to me, that's a, a huge red flag. I mean, on the investing side, I always think it's funny if I'm talking to a, a portfolio manager about their portfolio and they don't know every position my view is if you are the PM, you put that risk on and you need to know that risk and you don't need to look at a spreadsheet to know if that risk is there. Yeah. I had over, I had like 4,000 line items when I was at Sun Life and I knew all the, all of them. Right. And I didn't need to look, you know, cause I know because if I, if I had it there, it was there for a reason. And if I moved out of it, I would know that I moved out of it and why, you know, and, and I just feel like a lot of folks don't really have that attention to detail, which is, which is a big red flag. So yeah, especially point, early stage, you yeah. know, um, especially yeah, early company. stage. It's a small team, small company. How don't you know what the business is doing or how the product's being created or, you know? What are the big themes that you want to leave everybody with? Uh, mainly, 
themes for investors in VC to think about, and then also um, themes for founders to think about over the next, call it like three to five years. Yeah, I would I would leave it with one major theme is diversification on both sides. Venture capitalists should look at alternative industries, alternative geographies, alternative types of founders, because the main stuff, the hot stuff, isn't doing so well right now. Um, so, you know, the hot stuff isn't very hot. You got to look at the stuff that you typically don't consider. And I, I think VC should do that. Founders should do that as well. The fundraise isn't going so well. The typical Main Street VCs aren't giving you the money. You should look at alternative sources of capital, whether that's venture debt, whether it's something else. You need to look at alternatives and start diversifying both in terms of your fundraising strategy and for investors in terms of your investing strategy. I think diversification will help people survive in this downturn in this market. Um, if you don't do that and continue to stick to everything that you've been doing for the last three years, it's not going to work very well. Sonny, thanks again for coming on. It's I love talking to you, man. You always have such great insights on so many things. And uh, I think people that listen to this will learn a lot in terms of just how to how to prepare for or invest in the angel stage. I, I appreciate that. Thank you, Zach. Always good to be on. And I'm I'm just another guy. So, you know, whatever I know, every, anyone else can learn. It's just well, what's the best way for people to reach out to you if they want to learn more about Alleyway Capital and what you and Mahesh are doing over there? The website, alleywaycapital.com, is the best way. Okay, great. Well, thanks again for coming on, and thanks, everybody, for listening to the 7 and 7 show with Zach Ellison. This week, we featured Sunny Singh, and this will be a two-part episode because we talked about so many things for over an hour. So thanks Thank again. you again, Zach. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The 7 and 7 Show with Zach Ellison. We're glad you enjoyed this episode and gained valuable insights that you can use to grow your investment returns. Stay connected with us and access previous episodes of The 7 and 7 Show with Zach Ellison by visiting our website at www.7and7show.com or connect with us on Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok at 7 and 7 Show. Learn more about ARI's Venture Debt Opportunities Fund and sign up for ARI's newsletter, Uncommon Sense, at www.arivc.com. For investor inquiries, please contact ARI's team at ir at arivc.com. Thank you for your continued support. Until next time, keep learning and growing.